WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. Governor Holcomb sues the General Assembly, President Biden's first address to Congress, plus Secretary of State Holly Sullivan kicks off her campaign, and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending April 30th, 2021. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, Governor Eric Holcomb sued the Indiana General Assembly over legislation that would give lawmakers more authority to intervene during a public emergency. Legislative leaders say the lawsuit is not a surprise, calling the issue a fundamental disagreement with the governor. Many lawmakers felt sidelined during the COVID-19 pandemic as the governor issued dozens of executive orders, some of which legislators openly opposed. To give themselves more opportunity to intervene in the future, lawmakers passed a bill that allows them to call a special session of the General Assembly during a public emergency. But Holcomb, supported by some constitutional experts, believes the Indiana Constitution exclusively gives the governor that power, and he's suing to find out for sure. There is no timetable for how the lawsuit will play out, though Holcomb, in his filing, says the constitutional question should be answered as soon as possible. He says the law creates uncertainty and confusion, and its consequences could be severe. Will Hoosiers get a definitive answer from the courts on this constitutional question? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney. Republican Mike O'Brien. John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly, Statehouse reporter for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting Statehouse reporter Brandon Smith. Andalini, Attorney General Todd Rakita this week said he didn't give the necessary permission for the governor to hire outside counsel and bring this suit. So will there be procedural issues like that that prevent answering the core question? You know... I think Todd Rokita is so busy grandstanding running for governor that he hasn't bothered to look at what the statutes say. You need the attorney general's permission when it's two state agencies. The governor and the legislature are not state agencies. They're two co-equal branches of government, as, is, as are the courts. And they're supposed to decide disputes between co-equal branches of government. Todd Rokita doesn't know what he's talking about, which is not at all uncommon. But the fact of the matter is, this is exactly what the court is designed to do. This, this is, I think, an unconstitutional invasion of the, of the governor's prerogatives and powers, and the court will decide it. And Todd Rokita is irrelevant to this. And he ought to go back and he ought to look at what the law says, because, you know, if he's correct in his interpretation, then he has an ethical conflict. And he hasn't even addressed that. But he's not, he's, not, he's not correct in his interpretation. The governor does not need his permission to bring the lawsuit. What does Todd Rokita's uh, insertion into this process do for how it all plays out on a sort of political level? Well, it makes it look really well planned, like, like we did this on purpose, <laughs> and this is exactly what the Republican Party uh, had planned all along. Uh, no, uh, but look, I mean, the, 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 the implication that 
the Attorney General can block a constitutional question between two branches of government as a he's not he's not a constitutional officer. He, it's created by staff. I don't disagree with that. I thought we should have done that when we did superintendent. Do it I all think at once. so, too. Um, th th this creation of statute could be the traffic cop between a constitutional question between these two branches, the executive and the legislative. Of course the judicial branch should, should determine this. And if, they, and if we find that they can't or that the, the law doesn't permit that, then that law needs to be changed. That's a huge problem here. Um, if, if true, which I was interested in when we were when I was thinking through this week, I was interested in hearing Ann's answer just from a legal standpoint. Uh, but that's the that's the that's a bigger problem. And even if you're even if we're only here because the governor said you had to wear a mask, right? Like with everybody else in the world, like literally like global mask mandate, and Indiana went along with it, and the conservatives freaked. Um, you know, and, and that's that literally that's the only reason we're here. Um, and it's, but it's got to be answered. We have, we have to understand the answer to this, to this question the governor's asking the court. Yeah, that's exactly what I want to ask you, John. How important is it that we get an answer to this core fundamental or core uh, constitutional question that is being posed? I think we do need an answer. And that's, what the, that's why our government is set up the way it is for the judiciary to step in and answer, not step in, but when asked to step in and to be the proverbial referee, as, as Chief Justice John Roberts of the U.S. Supreme Court likes to say, this is the ultimate answer of calling balls and strikes. If this isn't a classic example of, you know, interpreting, uh, in this case, the state constitution, I don't know what is. Um, you know, Frank Sullivan, who's a former uh, justice in the Indiana Supreme Court, who has been large, one of the most outspoken uh, critics of this emergency powers uh, measure, I would defer to him. Uh, uh, he's a lot smarter on these issues than I am. But, he, you know, he points out that uh, prior to his tenure on the Indiana Supreme Court, he basically spent his career in the legislative branch, either in Congress, working for members of Congress, or uh, in other roles. He, he, his inclination is to give a lot of latitude and deference to lawmakers and legislative bodies. But for somebody like him who says, but you look at the state constitution, there's really not a lot of latitude or, or deference to be paid here because it's black and white. So I, I he has the degree, he has the credentials, I'll, uh, I'll endorse his interpretation. Nikki, you did a fair amount of reporting on the issue that Todd Rakita is raising here. How much do you think that that, how much of a stumbling block to getting to this constitutional question do you think that will be? I think it will be somewhat of a stumbling block. Back in 2013, Superintendent of Public Instruction Swellen Reed tried to sue the State Board of Education, and it was tossed specifically because they weren't given permission by the Attorney General to file it. So, it, I mean, this law oh, has... Glenda Ritz. Yeah, sorry. Glenda Ritz. So this law has been used before. The only thing we can hope for is that Speaker Houston and Senate President Pro Tem Rod Bray Direct, as clients of John Rakita, direct him to focus more on actually getting an answer for the citizens than on defending the powers of the attorney general's office. How does he defend the powers of the attorney? How does he defend the powers of the legislature against the powers of the governor when he's the attorney general of the state? Why is that not an ethical conflict for him? Well, some people say it is, but obviously... Well, some people... The, oh, the, in Indiana, it, it, it's, it is an ethical conflict, and he can't be involved in the decision. The political hierarchy of this is it should alarm conservatives that an that office created by a law that was passed is now taking, it's taking it upon himself to say what's constitutional and what isn't, or whether you can even ask the question to a branch of government. 
Yeah, and what, what if he does that? What if he stands up and opines on another issue? Not, not this one, but on another issue, and he says it's constitutional. Does that make it constitutional? And what, what, if, what if they're different parties? And now, now you're well, now you have the attorney general who's the who's the gatekeeper on, right. on the on the well, courts has, deciding whether an abortion law is yeah. constitutional or something that, that has which happened. is why the attorney general should be appointed and not elected. Absolutely, chaos. <laughs> President <laughs> Joe Biden. President President Joe Biden focused his first address to Congress on pitching his two latest policy proposals: the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. Biden's proposals would spend trillions of dollars on child care, pre-K, infrastructure, and much more. Democratic Congressman Andre Carson calls them a job creator. As cars and vehicles are getting smarter, our roads have to get smarter. So this infrastructure bill is not only going to do a lot for Indiana, it's going to do a lot for our country. Republican Senator Todd Young wants to focus on what he calls traditional infrastructure, transportation, energy, and Internet. And he says paying for it can use dollars that have already gone out. There's a lot of money that's gone out the door at the state and local level for COVID purposes uh, that hasn't been needed. And, and so uh, we should allow states and localities to offer that up as, as matching money to help fund uh, much of this infrastructure. Young says he also wants to see better enforcement of the existing federal tax code as a way to generate more revenue. Michael Bryan, how much of a chance is there that Biden's proposals pass? It depends on the Senate handles, and I don't think it'll be much of a problem to get, get this through the House. I, I don't like the premise of this. He gets, he, the, the justification for a program this big, and this will be the $6 trillionth, you know dollar spent um, if it passes in the last 100 days since he took office, but... Um, but we don't care really about the money anymore because I'm not going to go defend Donald Trump shoveling trillions of dollars out the door for, you know, in the, for the sake of COVID. And we have no real idea what, what happened to it, which I think is part of Todd Young's point in how to pay for this with money that was already sent and no one really knows why. But the premise for this was COVID ravaged the economy. There's not really evidence of that anymore. There is evidence that it was deliberately slowed down for public health reasons, and now it's being allowed to speed back up. But the fundamentals aren't aren't damaged. So if you want to go past free community college that Democrats have wanted for 50 years, or you want to go past paid, you know, paid child care, those are legitimate conversations to have on a policy basis, but we've gone way beyond COVID rationale on, on, on the proposals that this president and, and Democrats in Congress are going are to pursue. You can't just keep saying, well, it's for COVID. COVID did this, COVID did that, when there's no evidence of that. And when you're spending a, a, another mountain of money to, to infuse the, the March... Income, personal income in March was the highest on record. It had a, the highest one-month increase on record. That is because of stimulus, but this, this money is flowing through the people that presumably need it way well beyond where the economy was before, uh, pre-COVID. So I don't like the justification continuing to be that we've got to do this stuff for COVID. He, he makes a point that it really is what the Senate will do. What will the Senate, do you think these get well, through? Well, I think the Senate will do, I think they'll break it apart in, in, different, in different parts. And some of them are going to be so incredibly popular that they're going to have to go along with it. I mean, there isn't any question when you look around this country that a, a huge infrastructure agreement, uh, agreement infusion is necessary. I mean, Donald Trump said that in his campaign and was supposed to produce it in the first 100 days, and we haven't seen it. But between traditional infrastructure and, and also broadband, which is now really part of infrastructure, all of that has to be done. And the bottom part of that is if you want to create jobs and you want to stimulate the economy to go forward, to make up for what COVID has done, you put the investment in people. Community colleges 
one of the fat, the only fast-growing area in bankruptcy in this country is the elderly saddled with student loans. I mean, the, those kinds of things need to be addressed, and they need to be addressed if we're going to be competitive as a country. And he is exactly right, Biden is exactly right, that the Chinese are in danger of overtaking us if we don't do these kinds of things. And I applaud him for standing up. He's not going to be a caretaker. He is going to be an innovator, and he's going to move this country forward, and I, I think they're going to be hard-pressed to say no. Todd Young pointed out in the interview I did with him, he, he pointed out there are areas of agreement. He agrees that we need transportation um, investment in what he said are the areas of, of um, our infrastructure investment in the areas of transportation, energy, and, and, and Internet. Um, he agrees with some of the ways that the Biden administration wants to pay for some of this stuff. But does that show that this, at least parts of it, have real chances of becoming law? Oh, of course. I mean, it might get paired back a little in the Senate, but I think significant portions of the plans will pass. Uh, you know, it, and there should be a debate on the cost of these things, a national debate, just like there should have been a debate in the last presidency on the cost of things, including tax cuts. Those are fair debates to have because we've seen our federal debt skyrocket. So we do have to balance allegedly getting the economy going again versus, you know, what the long-term impact of that stimulus is. And one thing that Republicans, including Todd Young uh, in that interview with me, pointed out is that he's frustrated that it, he doesn't feel like there's much bipartisan outreach so far from Joe Biden on, on these plans. There wasn't any uh, Republican votes for the last COVID uh, stimulus package that was passed under President Biden and, and congressional Democrats. It seems to be relatively popular. So does it matter if there's bipartisan outreach? Uh, well, I think there has been. Uh, and maybe it doesn't get a lot of attention, but if you look at uh, interviews with a lot of members of the Republican caucus in the Senate. They say they've gotten calls out of the blue from Joe Biden, uh, Susan Collins, Maine, and others saying who he recognizes as potential gets in terms of this uh, competition for votes. Um, but I think he's finding what uh, the Obama administration found when it was trying to put together bipartisan support. There's, it's not there to be had. You can, you can try and you can beg and you can plead. Um, but if it's not there, it's not there. And I think that's uh, where Joe Biden is, is committed to saying, well, I've got this window right now. Who's to say what's going to happen after the next midterm? Uh, and with Kamala Harris there able to split ties, there's a lot of things that they can do, especially by making use of the budget re reconciliation process as they have. But I think to do all of the, that's this is a starting point. This is where, this is the, you know, because Joe Manchin, West Virginia Senator and others have already said some of these things cause them a bit of discomfort. So it'll be scaled back a little bit, but ultimately there will be something that comes out of this. All right, well, time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, will President Biden be able to pass his American Jobs Plan or American Families Plan through Congress? A, yes on the Jobs Plan, B, yes on the Families Plan, C, both, or D, neither. Last week, we asked whether Indiana should tax unemployment benefits received during the pandemic as it always has before. 30% of you say yes, 70% say no. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to WFYI.org IWIR and look for the poll. Well, newly appointed Indiana Secretary of State Holly Sullivan announced this week she will run in next year's election to keep that position.
Sullivan was named Secretary of State by Governor Holcomb just last month, replacing Connie Lawson, who retired. Sullivan was asked at the time whether she'd run for a new term after the current one expires. She demurred, saying she was focused on transitioning to the new role. In a statement, the former lawmaker says she's running for the job to bring her conservative record to defending Indiana's elections. Sullivan was criticized last month after her appointment when she refused to say the national 2020 presidential election was legitimate. Nikki Kelly, this campaign had a bit of a fumble at its start, did it not? Yeah, the the release that she when she announced included a fundraising plea. As, as I think did her website initially. Yes. But the problem is you can't fundraise during a budget writing session. And technically the session is still ongoing because they didn't adjourn so they can do redistricting later. Now lawmakers thought ahead to fix that law for this year, but the governor hadn't signed that bill into law yet. So she definitely made a little bit of a mistake. I think it I think it's a little you know, it was a very unusual circumstance, so I think it looks worse than it really was, but not a great start. Yeah, and even when he signed it, it still doesn't, uh, that moratorium was in effect until the 29th yesterday. Yep. So um, you can now donate to Holly Sullivan if you want, but uh, before it was technically not allowed. Is that a bad look for someone who's running to be the elections officer that she technically violated elections law? Sure. I mean, there's no candy, sugarcoating that. It, it, when you're in that role and you're supposed to know, you know, the minutia, if anybody on this planet does, it's the person who occupies that office. So sure, it looks bad. Now, is it a fatal error? Probably not. I mean, a long time between now and Election Day, and certainly that will not be the only issue. Uh, and she said that she already returned any oh, yeah. contributions. I, I don't, again, had. I don't think it's, it's a fatal blow uh, by any stretch. Now, opponents may try early and often to resurrect thoughts about that mistake and, uh, through... Uh, through conversation and paid media, but uh, the, this campaign will, election will be decided on issues, I think, other than that narrow uh, question of, of propriety. And to be fair to her, I suppose she'd only been on the job for less than two months, so, or less than a month, actually. Indiana lags behind national, the, behind the national average, excuse me, for COVID-19 vaccines, with only about 27% of the state's total population fully vaccinated. Now, when pointing to more rural zip codes, health officials this week said they're working with the Indiana Rural Health Association to help improve the numbers. State Health Commissioner Dr. Chris Box says access is only one of the barriers. I believe truly it has a little bit more to do with vaccine hesitancy than it has to do with the access there. But I always say you can't say it's about vaccine hesitancy until you've made sure that you've, you've made the access um, appropriate. While officials haven't set a benchmark for herd immunity, Dr. Lindsay Weaver, Indiana Department of Health Chief Medical Officer, says it is achievable that Indiana hits herd immunity in 2021. But she says experts are concerned about the consequences if we don't. What, what the CDC has been talking about, and we've heard other experts say that they are concerned about another large spike in, in the fall. So if you have not been vaccinated, then of course your risk of getting sick, being hospitalized, and even dying is much higher than the people who have been vaccinated. State health officials made a few new changes to the state's vaccine rollout Wednesday. Indiana is encouraging state vaccine providers to accept walk-ins and working to get primary care providers access to vaccines. John Schwannis, at what point does vaccine hesitancy start to become a real worry for Indiana? It probably became a worry or should have become a worry maybe four months ago when the FDA first gave emergency use authorization to uh, the, the initial vaccines uh, to combat 
COVID. I mean, clearly this is the issue. Uh, so much has been thrown at trying the logistical challenges of getting this manufactured and distributed, and that has, aside from some hiccups, gone fairly well. Clearly, most of the, the goals have been met in terms of the numbers of, of vaccinations that have been made available and administered, at least to the earlier, uh, those first groups of older individuals and, and those who have certain vulnerabilities. But now we're at a point where it's not the problem is uh, capacity or availability, it is this hesitancy. And, and when, as long as you have people who are questioning whether this is uh, some, you know, is this QAnon has not given them permission yet to, to go get a vaccine, and some people are asking their pastors, is this the mark of the beast? I mean, there's so much out there, whether it's some kind of political suspicion, some kind of medical conspira conspiracy theory, or some religious belief, that's the problem. So it's not whether it's available or not. So this should have been, if it wasn't a concern uh, back in January, it should have been. I think what John just talked about in terms of, I think that's what most people think about those who are hesitant about this vaccine. But I think there is more to it than that, I was though. I say, I think that's an oversimplification. I, I, certainly there are people. I thought that's what this show is about. Yeah, no, certainly there are people who are, quote, the crazy anti-vaxxers. But I know a lot more people who are very hardworking, average citizens who just are concerned about a vaccine that was moved so fast through trials. They're not, you know, crazy for that belief. They haven't had COVID. They don't know anyone who's had COVID or not in a serious manner, and they're not ready to take that risk yet. I, I do think we get ourselves in trouble if we try to label everyone as you know sort of being unreasonable because i think there are people in the middle who have reasonable concerns and we shouldn't treat them like pariahs what does it take to break through some of this because this is about everybody's health not just the people who will or will not get vaccinated i think it takes personal stories on this too i heard a program on npr of all things over the weekend where they they actually brought chris christie into a bunch of the anti-vaxxers to talk about how it had ravaged through the white house and and had affected them in ways they hadn't anticipated that and the fact that now we have what almost 1.8 million hoosiers who have been vaccinated yeah. and everybody who's been vaccinated seems to be doing okay and not getting the virus i think those combination of things plus you know incentives like the 500's doing by making it readily available and encouraging people if they want to come to the race to be vaccinated. You know, I, I really do think that in some cases we, we ought to be, and I think cruise lines will do this, regardless of the goofball governor in Florida, will say either you show us you're vaccinated or we'll go outside in international waters and if you don't show us then we'll turn around and bring you back. I mean, you have to have some common sense with this. And I think people... I understand that it was rushed through. On the other hand, hundreds of millions of people have had it without any negative side effects. And that's, and that's the kind of thing we need to dealt with. But no one's worried. Some of those people are worried about the negative side effects years down the road. They're not worried about immediacy. No. They're worried about what we don't know years later. Michael Bryan, is, is the private sector, you know, she, she's just, and just sort of referenced it with the cruise line sort of example. Does the private sector going to play a role in breaking through a little bit on vaccine hesitancy? Certainly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be, we talked about vaccine passports a couple weeks ago. Um, you're not, this isn't a theoretical conversation about whether or not you have, you're, at some point you're going to have to prove to someone you had, a, you had the vaccine if you want to do something that isn't required of you, right? Unless it's, I don't think we're going to see employers in mass require 
vaccinations. There's already, they're clearly already incentivizing it. We had vaccine hesitancy before COVID. We're going to have it forever. I don't know what to do about the, the person that's like, well, I'm worried about the side effect a decade from now. I'm like, all right, well, I, I, I want to have a, you know, if so you're a young woman, you have a... now to worry about it. Yeah, I mean, what, I, what you know right now is if you get this and you have pre-existing conditions, there's a chance you're going to die from it or get really sick. But there's evidence that that's not going to happen when you, when you get this vaccine. So one thing I struggle with is at what point, what's the government's ongoing role in this? They've made it, they use every level in their power to make GM or whoever make respirators, right? That was a big, big deal. Force um, development of these things. Break down regulatory barriers to push a vaccine to market. Now it's readily available. And now you've got people going, nah, I don't know. All right, well, at some point the government goes, well, here it is. Yeah. We're, we're out of it. Yeah. And society's got to move on. All right. Well, finally, Oregon lawmakers are exploring a different way to dole out hundreds of millions of dollars in federal COVID-19 relief money. They're going to let individual lawmakers decide how to spend individual pots of money. $4 million per senator, $2 million per state representative. Andalini, I was going to ask you how you'd spend that money, but I think I would ask, how would you avoid federal prison through that system? I think this is a criminal defense attorney full employment bill. I mean, the idea that this is going to go through Oregon and be done and nobody's going to get indicted, forget it. I'll take that bet. I'd keep it and move to the islands, I guess. <laughs> I'd sit in our state. Yeah. Your driveway you, you'd, be really, you'd be really unpopular. I'm like, well, I'll be really unpopular in paradise with $4 million in my pocket. So come get me. There goes your future state representative <laughs> I'm just hoping the infrastructure, the infrastructure package has enough funding for all those new FBI offices Seriously. that are going to be opening uh, the across Pacific the state of Northwest. Oregon. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity and on the WFYI app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Stay safe, stay healthy. Please keep wearing a mask, at least not outdoors. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations.